0: At Freedom HealthWorks, we're focused on putting medical professionals back in control of their practices. Utilizing a structured, tailored approach to business, startup, and operations, it could make sense for you to work with our professional team to avoid expensive pitfalls and, more importantly, expedite your journey to success. As we all know, time is money. If you're involved in the practice of medicine and desire to practice free of headaches and constraints, reach out for a no-obligation consultative conversation. Call us today at 317-804-1203 or visit
1: FreedomHealthWorks.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Healthcare Americana. I am your host, Christopher Habig, CEO and co-founder of Freedom HealthWorks. This is a podcast for the 99% of people who get care in America. We're not clinicians or policymakers. We're patients and caregivers, executives and advocates who are fed up with the status quo, and we have a desire to change it. This podcast brings listeners backstage at innovative organizations with innovative individuals across America that are putting patients first by delivering exceptional care to anyone and everyone. The past two years have, in my mind, really pushed the adoption of worthwhile technology forward and recentered the experience of patients in any type of a healthcare topic. I say that with rose colored glasses on, but ideally that is what is happening. We've seen all kinds of innovation from technology. We've talked a lot of it on our show from even an artificial intelligence to systems that are helping out from behind the scenes of getting people involved, making care more accessible, more attractive, hopefully more affordable. And there's always a seismic shift in how healthcare is delivered as well. So today's guest, is Dr. Justin Graham, the chief medical officer of Giant. And what they are doing is something that is very unique in really the virtual assistant type of space to drive a lot of that innovation happening, help out physicians across the spectrum, and help out patients access good, reliable options. Because if anybody has ever used healthcare system and tried to find answers beyond just a simple primary care or community care office, it gets pretty lonely out there, it gets pretty bleak, and we definitely don't want that to happen. So, Dr. Graham, welcome to Healthcare Americana. I'm thrilled to have this discussion with you and excited that you are our special guest here on Healthcare Americana.
2: Oh, Chris, it's great to be here. Uh, I've enjoyed your podcast and uh, it's just an honor to be invited to join you today.
1: I appreciate that, always, always nice to talk to a listener. And just as a kind of a public announcement here, Dr. Graham is is here because he reached out to us and said, Hey, I got some fun stuff that I'm working on. And we're like, you know what? That is that does sound like a lot of fun stuff that you're working on here. So give us a little bit about your background as a, a physician moving into more of a business career. You know, that's always a very interesting transition to me. So would love to hear your thoughts and your words on you know where your career has taken you to this point.
2: Yeah, of course, Chris. Uh, I grew interested in the intersection of information technology and healthcare all the way back in medical school, which in my case was a very long time ago. That was the nineties when it was the beginning of people getting email addresses. And when you were browsing the World Wide web on uh, Mozilla or early internet explorer.
1: And that was before and, social media, you know, made the world turn in on itself too. So I just want to yeah, give a really special call out on that
2: one. <laughs> yeah. Long, long before there was any social media. I mean, we barely had the World Wide web at that point. I mean, you couldn't even, we didn't even have e-commerce at that point. And it was a novel idea that you could email your physician. You know? And physicians were like, what do I do with this email that's got all this clinical data and I'm not sure how to process it? And most health systems didn't even have electronic health records. As a medical student, I realized uh, that I was being asked to do all of the, the dirty work behind the scenes. This is one of the little secrets about early first, second, third year medical students is that all of the work no one wants to do rolls downhill and the medical student is filling out forms and running things all over the hospital. And as I was sitting and filling out a form in triplicate using carbon paper, which is something I'm not sure any of your listeners even remember what that is, but actual carbon paper. The old dot matrix
1: printers with the little tear sheets on the sides of them. Yeah,
2: that too. But there weren't even printers. It was literally two sheets of paper and you put this onion skin carbon paper between two pieces of paper and write really hard so it goes through to the paper below that's how you made a copy it was like purple it was like
1: this weird purple color too and they're kind of like purple. dusty You're like this is weird this is yeah. a little off-putting
2: your, your fingers turned all purple from touching it and if you didn't push down hard enough no one could read anything it was a mess <laughs> and I'm, I'm sitting doing this for like my fourth consecutive day as a medical student i'm like I'm, i thought i came to medical school to learn how to practice medicine not to be a, a scribe or a scut monkey as we call them and Meanwhile, I go home and I'm on my email, I'm writing my papers, I wrote my applications on Microsoft Word, and why isn't this in healthcare? So that was the early inspiration was just seeing how inefficient and backward healthcare was in terms of using digital tools, and that was my inspiration even back in medical school to pursue this career at the intersection of digital and health, and follow that through my residency in internal medicine, and then uh, an infectious disease fellowship where I got a master's in medical informatics, spending my time actually developing public health algorithms to detect respiratory pandemics in the U.S. population, which was 20 years before we actually had a massive respiratory pandemic in the human population.
1: Well, hold hold Um, on. Hold on right there now. All right. You can't just throw that out there and move by it real quickly. (laughs) I know you're kind of smiling on it. All right. So 20 years ago, what did that look like versus what actually happened?
2: Well, our thought at that time was looking at either an influenza-like outbreak or at the time there was a lot of worry about bioterrorism, anthrax, for instance, being spread. So we were trying to figure out, anybody who has studied the history of infectious diseases in humanity knows that a worldwide pandemic of some respiratory virus was inevitable. We knew it was going to happen, even 20 years ago. Anybody in public health could have told you it was going to happen, which is why it was a tragedy that we weren't more prepared a couple of years ago when this happened. Nevertheless, we were at that time trying to identify perhaps if it was again before social media, before widespread exchange of news back then. This was like 2000, 2002. And we were trying to de- see could we detect if something was spreading in the population that we were unaware of? So maybe something got released, people were getting sick, and the public health system hadn't found it. So in the COVID era, as you know, we got a, a big early warning sign from China. We saw what was going on in China and then Italy, but we didn't really act. So it wasn't really the detection that failed in this country; it was uh, action after the detection. But yeah, you know, we were trying to look at things like wastewater analysis, and you know, if people called in sick you know, in like a geographic area, we spent a lot of time studying flu. We didn't have good we didn't have good models to build off of. I think anyone doing this work in the future is going to have an awful lot of data to work off of.
1: Yeah, that is true, especially early computing in 2002. Yeah, a little bit more powerful computers there, but no, I think that's fascinating and. and I mean, 20 years ahead of the curve, I, I find it interesting that you say like, hey, we knew that this was going to happen. What kind of precedent was there? And, and this is me just speaking out of personal curiosity. I know this is what we you know, originally set out to talk about, but I find this particularly fascinating.
2: Sure. I, I could talk about infectious diseases all day. I, you know, It's my specialty. I love that. But uh, first of all, I, you can look through human history and see time and time again on the order of approximately every century, we've seen massive pandemics sweep through human population. We are, after all, just animals on planet earth that are subject to infections the way all animals are probably more so because we tend to uh, communicate and spread things worldwide. And and we're very social animals. We spread things from person to person. And you've seen, I mean, you could go back to things like the black death or uh, other, other things, but we've seen even in the historical record, uh, pneumonia and respiratory plagues spread around the world, including periodic massive influenza pandemics like the one in 1918 that, before this COVID pandemic, I think most people in America had forgotten about, but it was more deadly to uh, young men in America than World War I, which had just preceded it. So we had more young men, soldiers dying of flu than they died in the war. And it was, you know, obviously terrible. So we had that. And then we had been seeing coronavirus um, outbreaks from MERS and, and SARS, some of the other coronaviruses that were of great concern to the public health community. Maybe didn't quite escalate to the U.S. public consciousness, but a lot of us were very concerned that if those got widespread, we would be seeing a lot of severe outcomes. So so it's just a matter of history repeating itself. It's like I I live in the San Francisco Bay Area. We know there's going to be a big earthquake one day. I couldn't tell you it's tomorrow. I couldn't tell you if it's in 20 years, but there will be a big earthquake. We've seen it in the history. We see how things work. So I don't think I was doing anything particularly innovative by thinking about that 20 years before COVID. I think a lot of those, a lot of people in public health knew that it was inevitable again. And that's why it was kind of such a shame that we got hit so hard with not having enough protective gear, not having enough ventilators, not having a nationwide plan for how to respond. It was pretty sad because as a nation, we should have known.
1: Yeah, I appreciate the kind of the kind of segue there. And, and I think a lot of that builds into a lot of learning, Um you know, I, I am a big fan of taking a step back, of you know looking at history books and just seeing like, wow, look at the collective intelligence and the collective learning that has happened amongst human beings over millions of years or however long we've actually been on this rock. And even looking at, all right, 20 years ago, knew something was going to happen, knew some patterns, that kind of thing. Fast forward into a couple of years ago where, you know, the global pandemic hits and I agree with you that we were unprepared. And I'm going to take a little bit different tack to that. I believe that we were so unprepared because the payment models that we were all, that actually very few people are going very fat and very happy and very lazy with, um, were just so behind the current trends. And a lot of people point to telemedicine. And I'm a big fan of looking at telehealth and saying, you know what, hospitals, this wasn't something you had just invented. This has been around, Skype's been around since the 90s. This is... More of a, well, I guess us being caught kind of with our pants down there, in my mind, was more of a payment model. There was no incentive to be prepared to provide access and to provide answers for people and to be able to collect and figure out what's going on and act on it quickly because the dollars didn't add up to certain CPT codes. And that's where I think the biggest failure of our health system was. And happy to hear your thoughts on that. But I want to bring that back to our conversation of Giant and how you know, I love the mission of making care more accessible. So I'll turn the microphone back over to you and, and say, you know, just based on kind of that, that little bombshell, kind of football I lobbed out there. Um, where did you guys come up with this idea? And, and, and what are you seeing as far as market adoption? And, and really, can we make care more accessible within the current confines of payment systems? That's a lot. That's a that's a big question right there. So I, yeah, I get great. it. Chris,
2: lot, a lot to unpack there. I would say it's not a bombshell at all. Not at all controversial opinion. We have a healthcare system that for the most part rewards uh, high reimbursement, uh, elective procedures or other things. It does not reward preparation. We had no capacity for surge capacity. So no, no hospital is keeping a bunch of beds and staffing available in case there's a pandemic so that they can Open up it, it's hard,
1: it. yeah. It's hard to model for, as a business, and we have a massively unhealthy population and very little personal accountability.
2: Yeah, I would agree with that as well. So, I think the the public health conversation, perhaps, is we could spend the whole podcast talking about that. We're already, I, I we're already off it.
1: the off the charts here, Doc. Yeah. So you know um, what? what?
2: <laughs> you and I are aligned. I, I do think the business model of healthcare is not at all aligned with the public health of America, and it's a reckoning we have to come to in this country at, at some level. It's going to be hard to disentangle. But let me get let me get to the the meteor question about giant and where we came from to try to at least address part of the problem. One of the issues that the pandemic uncovered was the great challenges with access to healthcare, challenges with dropping and dwindling staffing of trained professionals in healthcare. Whether you're talking about nurses, physicians, or the support staff that are also involved, other clinicians. And uh, you've also had the, the growth of digital technologies like telemedicine and other approaches to reach out to patients and patients having different expectations today around how they can communicate with others. They communicate with their bank or their airline or with their loved ones or whatever through, through the handheld devices that they carry around with them every day. And so at giant, we've recognized that we're trying to help our health system and payer partners get into this next wave of how they interface with their consumers and their customers by providing this digital front door modality that's partially automated that allows them to, or fully automated, but enables a back end live chat if they need it enables that augments their staff, allows consumers patients to reach out to their health systems or their payers whenever it's convenient for them. And it's not always convenient to call the health system when they're open between, nine and five with a two-hour break for lunch in the middle. Sometimes you you know, you want to reach out at three in the morning when you're having pain in your foot after surgery, or sometimes you want to get some questions about what's going on with uh, your child's uh, rash on the weekend and you don't have a phone line to call. So it's access across different times, access using digital technology, and uh, freeing up staff from a lot of routine questions that can be automated so that they can do the high-touch stuff for the patients that really need it. I don't think we've ever... At Giant, we make a automated digital assistants, virtual assistants. We probably neglected to mention that early on. Virtual assistants that uh, sit on the front-door webpage or in an app or part of a digital campaign for perioperative or post-op or post-discharge care for our health system and payer customers. We have customers across the spectrum. It's It's been a terrific uh, couple of years as health systems have started to realize the great need for this, so... We work with Mayo and Cleveland Clinic, Geisinger, Intermountain, and a number of payers as well. And um, we are presenting that layer of interoperability with patients uh, on a digital level that they want. And a lot of these health systems, the value proposition we're presenting to them is a a closer, tighter relationship with their patients, meeting them where they want, where where they're at, direct access night and day, and freeing up staff. We never have proposed to replace all staff. We want staff to do the stuff that requires high touch and requires a human being, and we don't need valuable staff time being spent telling people where the parking lot is or how to reset the password or even really some simple clinical triage things that say, just call your primary care doctor and set up an appointment in the next week. It's not urgent. So we can do that as well. My role as chief medical officer is to manage both the clinical and then the data science side pieces of of what Giant does.
1: We're talking with Dr. Justin Graham, as he said, Chief Medical Officer of Giant, and that's G-Y-A-N-T. Dr. Graham, talking about what you just said there, where we want to increase access and yet not burden staff, how do you pull something like that off in the confines of medical technology and patient care?
2: Yeah, we've invested as a society in, in a lot of digital tools for our health systems. There was a massive amount of funding that went to health systems to part of this, uh, high tech, uh, act that went into play at the end of the Bush era, the beginning of the Obama era and, uh, has paid for health systems to implement electronic health records. And one of the promises of doing that was to increase access, increase efficiency, have a longer conversation about how far we've gone towards achieving those goals. I was about to say, uh,
1: did uh, did those tens of millions of dollars were they effective? Was it effective?
2: Doing <laughs> uh, more than more than millions, they were talking billions. But uh, I think that's worthy of a conversation. We can go into that. But uh, nevertheless, we should hold our health systems and our and, and other he- major players in the health healthcare system to high account for providing access and being efficient and providing the customer service we need. And Giant is one of you know we're a number of companies in this area that are trying to really bring that promise to patients and, and, and really help health systems that want to do this. I mean, there are many health systems and many payers that really want to have this level of communication and access to their patients that, you know, one of the great things about working in healthcare, as opposed to other businesses like finance or, or retail is that almost everyone in this business is mission driven. Almost everybody wants to do the right thing. Almost everybody is trying to reach out and provide access to their to their customers and their patients because they want them to get better healthcare and they're trying to do the right thing for them. And we hear that again and again. And there's a return on investment, absolutely. And and there's also this feeling like you're doing the right thing. And often in healthcare, those things don't align, unfortunately, because the financial model of healthcare doesn't always align with the best course of action for a patient. But I think in this particular instance, it does. And I think that's why I've been able to feel really good about the work we've been doing.
1: I'm always curious... Just because I like to pick on the chief medical officers, and this is not a a confrontation by any means, there's always one word out there that people that work with hospitals use, and it just kind of rolls off the tongue. A lot of people miss it. A lot of people assume, but that word is quality. Give me a quick definition of what quality means to your client's because I'm looking, you know, i been researching this, this conversation, you do all the business with a lot of health systems. You mentioned a couple of, you know, some of the top tier, best hospitals, best health, best health systems uh, in the nation there. What does the word quality mean to somebody at Mayo and some of the other customers that you have?
2: Well, uh, I mean, the quality has, uh, you know, is can be either formally measured using a variety of quality metrics. And, you know, we've, you go back to the Institute of Medicine, crossing the quality chasm classic about how to define quality and safety, timeliness, uh, equity, et cetera. But uh, I think more broadly, when people talk about quality, they're really, you can either go down to the to the weeds or you can talk about just the big picture about both brand as well as sort of feeling like you're doing the right thing for the patient. And you're getting, again, you're, you're sort of, everything is safe. What you're doing is effective. It's efficient. You're not wasting anybody's time and you're doing the right thing. The right actions at the right time for the right people, and I think you can define particular metrics. But in some sense, it's sort of like you can also see it uh, in just in the heart of what's going on and sort of evaluate it. As a physician, you sometimes just have to make the right you have to make the right call, even if without a lot of data. Sometimes you do the best you can to meet the evidence where the evidence is, but sometimes there's no evidence to do what the right thing is, and you've got to pick the right thing. So uh, we've got health systems that are really, as we mentioned, very name brand top-notch health systems to their customers. And they, you know, they have a, like all health systems, I think all health systems really feel like they have a very strong obligation to do the right thing and provide high-quality care to their patients. But these particular institutions have built an international reputation on that as well. And so when they come to us and they came to us to evaluate our technology, they wanted to make sure that the clinical components of it, which I'm ultimately responsible for, were safe and effective. And that really put our team to the test to really define what that would mean in the, in the context of a artificially intelligent chatbot that provides triage services. And we like to think that the tool that we, ha- we have built and have continued to evolve and refine is at least as good as that triage nurse on the phone and probably better. Unlike that triage nurse that you might hire to sit on the phone and answer phone calls all day, we can quantify how good our system is. And we can improve it every single day. And when we find something that we're not satisfied with, tomorrow it's better. Can't always do that with a triage. You can train triage nurses, and there are many great ones, but mistake today is soon forgotten, you know, or something that's on the borderline you may never hear about. But we are able to really monitor in real time what we're doing. We're able to make updates to what the triage system is doing based on new data. And... Uh, new evidence that comes out in literature, and we are able to identify quality issues and fix them overnight and know that they won't ever be a problem again. So that's the promise of doing something using a a digital tool as opposed to relying on humans.
1: And I find it fascinating because, you know, in my mind, Giant in your software system is I mean are you, are you diagnosing when you're talking when it's it's kind of the chatbot the AI are there diagnoses here or are you just answering simple questions like what are your hours where's your parking lot I mean how how far into the patient care journey can you go
2: well you know I'm a physician and I strongly believe you need a human being to make a diagnosis I don't think a, I don't think a, any AI system today is capable of doing that there's too many factors that are beyond uh, that a human being can pick up on that aren't being able to you can't program into a system. So I would not say we do diagnosis. I will say we are able to do a very detailed patient interview and come up with an appropriate triage classification and a list of possible conditions that that patient might consider going on. Now, I, I would not go so far as to say it's a diagnosis and in fact, we suppress some of the things that a physician might think of as a diagnosis because we're not we don't think we're in the business of making that determination. For instance, if a patient has, characteristics that are highly suggestive of a new onset of some kind of malignancy, let's say, maybe new onset of acute leukemia or a cancer, I am not going to have our bot present that to the patient when they first go through their symptoms. That's just inappropriate. And uh, even if I am have a good chance of being right, I'm, there's also a good chance I'm wrong. And that's not the first way to, to interface with somebody on that. So that's just one example where we're really trying to not think of ourselves as a diagnostic tool, but more as a triage tool. Any more than a triage nurse would make a diagnosis on the phone. Triage nurses can't. They're actually not licensed to do that. And they would never try to. But we can tell somebody, you need to go to the emergency room right now. Hang up. Drop the phone. Go to the emergency room right now. Or we can say, listen, this is not a big deal. Call your primary care doctor in the morning. Or go to the orthopedics clinic or whatever. It's not a big deal. Wait wait another week. Um, We'll figure it out. We're also able to take all of that interview, turn it into a clinical note, and then present that to the receiving physician who will see that patient and save them a heck of a lot of time from asking all the pertinent questions and going through a whole interview again, because we'll, we've already asked the most precise and uh, thorough interview you'd need for the set of conditions the patient's
1: presenting with. Based on what you just said, Is there hope that, you know, based on what we've seen from the pandemic and again, the advent of telehealth and there's a lot of people out there that just say, you know what, I'm a doctor. I just want to see virtual appointments. How realistic is that when you look at somebody's actual total care needs that any type of a system or a a certain percentage of physicians can move into a virtual only practice? And what I'm hearing, and I've been a big proponent of what you just said, I, and I completely agree with you, that it's going to be hard for, you know, medicine to move all that way. And you still, as a physician, need to provide hands-on care. So how far can a virtual practice go? And I know there specialties that are appropriate and not appropriate. So putting that aside just as a general, as a whole, based on what you've been able to do at Giant, how far does that go and how much does that actually help?
2: Well, I, I think there's a lot more a lot more to go than what we can do virtual, but I would never say we could do 100% without actually laying hands on an individual or meeting them face-to-face. So there's some upper limit. I think we've got a long way to go before we hit that upper limit of what we can do virtually. I think there's a lot of opportunity. This is even beyond the scope of what we're talking about at Giant, but just my belief, there's opportunity for largely virtual models where you augment with uh, home health visit or some other kind of Hands on visit to do some of those physical exam tests or maybe a quick lab work or some kind of quick check in with the patient face to face that you can't evaluate through telemedicine and make it so that going to in person visit is more of a last resort or reserved for certain conditions or procedures that can't possibly be done remotely. It's going to be a mix. It's just like we're seeing with. Going back to work, you know, working remotely and working in person, there's some real advantages to being able to work from home. I mean, people aren't wasting their time on commutes. You can live anywhere in the country, maybe in the world, and and work, uh, and employers can find great employees all over the place, not limited to a geographic area. At the same time, you lose something from not being in person. There's some collaboration that's not happening in person. Maybe people, the hours they work might be different. So I think the same is going to be with healthcare. I think some healthcare is going to be terrific to be virtual. Some people are going to love the convenience of not having to take a day off of work to have to go into the doctor's office and wait in a waiting room for you know an hour to, for a 15-minute visit and then another hour for their x-ray uh, or something like that where they can do at home virtually on a telemedicine service and get a lot of it taken care of. Maybe that's terrific. And then there's some people whom the in-person is, is essential. So I'm just glad we're opening it up as a new modality, as a new approach. And I think there's a lot more opportunity to be creative and explore this space.
1: Are you finding that we're still moving that way or did it, once we, once the economy opened back up and people were more in person, did you see kind of a pause and say, oh, everybody uh, needs to come back into the office?
2: Well, you've seen that in the numbers, in the national numbers on how tele- telemedicine visits have sort of dropped off since that, those heady days of late 2020 in the pandemic when we had everybody doing telemedicine all the time. It's a combination of things. I think there are definitely some patients who would prefer to be seen in person or have some conditions that are better off treated in person. And you've seen the incentives switch on the healthcare side. The reimbursement models haven't really been shored up. And uh, I think that there's a dirty secret about healthcare providers, which is that when you come in person, they have ways to upsell more packages and more things so that they make more money. Get a lab test here in our lab. Our imaging center is right around the corner. Use our pharmacy in the building. And um, there was some money loss there associated with just doing things through telehealth. It's as we said earlier, you know, it's the reimbursement system of American healthcare care is not aligned with the public health of America. And all in favor of people making a good living in healthcare, they should. It's a tough, tough job, and we've got to do a lot of training to get there. But we have to also figure out a way that we're providing the kind of care and access that Americans need to, you know, so that we can get a healthier nation.
1: We're talking with Dr. Justin Graham, the Chief Medical Officer of Giant. Exploring your last point right there, you know, medicine is a calling. I'm a firm believer of that. I was raised by two physicians. I I get to see the impact that they made on people's lives, and it was fantastic. In my coming-of-age story, I was actively discouraged from going into medicine. Not by my parents. They kind of kept their mouths shut. I was the last of three, so I was the last hope to go into medicine. But uh, everybody else that you'd meet and, and shadow and said... Chris, medicine is not what it used to be. Don't don't do this. Don't go here. So uh, I found a way to circle back to it. But based on not just my anecdotal personal story, but we hear that a lot. We hear that we have the most talented veterinarians in history right now because a lot of them want to take care of animals instead of people. And I believe that. What can we do to show that, you know what, medicine is a good, viable career now and People, our best and brightest, we, we need them to go into it. You know, the, the smartest people in our communities, the people that are empathetic and want to care for their fellow human beings, that's where we need them just as a whole and as a society. And I say that, I'm not getting any younger. You know, I got I got I got a family. I want there to be solid care options for them <laughs> coming up coming up uh, in the future. So how do we boost the population, not just to primary care but even specialists and make them more accessible make it more affordable as a whole
2: yeah and chris i would say your parents should be proud of you because you're doing a heck of a lot for healthcare with your podcast and with your initiative so oh, thank uh, you despite not going down the, the medical route i think you, you may have had an even bigger impact um, we've got a lot of changes we have to make in american healthcare i think some of the changes we have to make are being held hostage by our political system which is yet another podcast discussion for us to have, but the political system is uh, it's extremely hard to have uh, meaningful conversations and meaningful progress on transforming things that we know are broken. It's no secret in Washington that the Medicare trust fund is going to run out of money in, in the next five to ten years. It's, it's no secret that our health care quality metrics are, are t- you know, terrible for the industrialized world across the country. And that we have massive numbers of uninsured still, even after the Obamacare attempt. So uh, yet we have, uh, you know, know, politicians in Washington who have other things on their mind. So I think that's, uh, you know, failing uh, the the transformation of government-based health care on a federal level, we have to look to make changes in other ways, and some of that is in more consumer-directed approaches where consumers can opt into a different system, like a direct primary care or a concierge or other models, but that's not really holistic care. That's, you know, a partial, and that's a partial solution. It certainly doesn't help those people who aren't able to access those sort of more personalized models. And then we've got, you know, we've got a problem where, as a, an incentive problem as a specialist, where, you know, you are deep medical debt. You've gone into a special specialty that's relatively lucrative. Why would you do anything other than the most lucrative possible direction to keep practicing medicine, you know, whether it go, go get employed by a health system or go down a private practice route where you can do your, the most lucrative procedures. I don't fault anybody for making that personal decision. You're going where the incentives are, but that may not be in the best interest of America. We may, we may need those we want those specialists to do fewer procedures and actually help patients stay away from the operating room or away from the procedure suite through counseling, through diet, exercise, medication, and we'd want those specialists to really help them through that, but they're not incentivized to do that. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of a program that I heard about at a major academic medical center on the East Coast that was designed to help train diabetics uh, to do better diabetes care. You know, we had a couple very enthusiastic physicians doing group visits and all kinds of ways to reduce uh, uh, diabetic complications, and the hospital made them quit because they felt like they were losing money by not having as many amputations. So these things are happening out there and it's, it's, it's really, uh, it's, it's a sad story. Uh, and you know, I think you and me and everyone else who cares about the health of the nation should be continuing to advocate for how to change the incentives.
1: We always, we always bat around and I'll tell this to anybody who, who says higher access, lower cost, not the way to go. It's all going to be hospital driven. It's all going to be gobbled up, swallowed up and consolidation is the way to go. I say, you know what, tell me what the ICD CPT code is for somebody Actually, being healed of their chronic condition. How does a doctor get paid for a diabetic beating it, getting back into shape, whatever it is, and no longer being diabetic? Is that a loss for the hospital? And it's like, well, shoot, yeah, they're not going to earn any more money on that patient. So, where is the incentive, right? Just like you said, uh, to exactly to your point there.
2: Yeah, even even the payer potentially loses money on that because they do all the investment up front in helping that person with diet and exercise and changing. And, and the benefits are accrued down the line, usually in Medicare, when that patient gets to be, you know, five, 10 years down the line and no longer has that commercial insurer, let's say, to be their insurer anymore. So even the payer doesn't really feel the need to invest in this because it's not a short-term gain in, in, in most cases.
1: Dr. Graham, as our episode comes to a close here, I, th- I think we're on the same page of this. And this is why we have this this podcast and this show bring out a lot of stories and a lot of people who are kind of floating below the radar but impacting people in a in a real, real way. You mentioned politics real briefly there. Um, I'm just going to put this out there that I think it's going to be grassroots that actually solve the issue. It's not going to come from Washington. There's too much baggage there. You know, When they talk about health care reform, in my mind, they're just talking about health insurance reform. Who's going to be actually footing the bill? The government already pays 65% of the medical bills in this country. And there's about three or four other companies that, that do the rest, so you know we're we're pretty close to that all-in-one controlled. And so, what what I would love to see on a grassroots is is people using systems like Giant and really demanding that. I, I would like to see a more educated consumer. I guess is my point here. And I usually end this, these episodes with, "Hey, give me a, give me an idea of your your perfect health care system." But I'm going to switch it up on you. Okay, uh, I think you're I think you're sharp enough for this one. If you had an audience with every single healthcare consumer in the United States, and you had a microphone. What would you tell them? What is their best way to impact healthcare for the positive by taking some type of an action?
2: Well, if you talk about every healthcare consumer, that's all of America. So I'm, mm-hmm. that's a pretty big, pretty big audience that I'm talking to. And um,
1: Billboards across the country. What's your message to people?
2: My message to people...
1: And this is putting I you think, on the spot here, so I like I said, yeah, I, I've you, never done this before. You are, uh, and so
2: forgive me if I if I think for a minute here, but uh, there's got to be some personal accountability. You, you can't just expect to waltz into a doctor's office after not taking care of your body for 20 years and expect some kind of magical fix. So I think to some extent you need to be able to you need to understand the consequences of behavior and your actions and your long term health. But that said, I think everybody is entitled to. Uh, be treated fairly and appropriately, and have access to healthcare. I think there's also among a certain amount, certain number of people, there's also an entitlement of like I deserve every test, I deserve every, you know I've paid for all my healthcare. Uh, we didn't even get into this, but you know I paid for all this healthcare, therefore I should get every test I need when I feel I'm sick. And I think maybe there's another side to this is the expectations of the American consumer
1: separating Probably insurance in, from healthcare. Yep, that's a good one. Yeah,
2: yeah, I think there's another piece of that we haven't talked about. I'd encourage people towards the end of the end. Of, I got a lot of billboards. I got a lot of messages to get out, I guess I uh, <laughs> encourage people, you know, uh, later in life, probably advanced directives and really thinking about what it means to, what it means to die and what an appropriate death is because we, we spent a massive amount of money in this country on the last six months of life. A lot of times because people are given this unrealistic expectation by the medical industrial complex that we can treat, we can keep you alive forever. And Unfortunately, part of being human is dying, and we all need to be able to recognize that and know what that means and be prepared for that. So, I guess I got a, I got a lot of messages for for America. I'm not sure anybody wants to hear my messages, but uh, also, you know, pro vaccine, pro public health. Don't don't throw public health under the bus. You know that kind of thing. I think it. Another message, Chris. You better get me off this uh, this very large soapbox uh, quickly before uh, America thought you a lifesaver
1: here, Doc. No worries, no worries. No, I a good good thanks for being a good sport. Um, I think there's a lot of takeaways in what you said, a lot of lessons available for people out there. I, if I may, I might just boil it down that people need to be more educated and understand their options and not just walk into a doctor's office if they have an insurance card and throw it down and said, I want whatever this buys me take an interest in in being an actual educated healthcare consumer. So if that's where you're going, I'm right yep, there with absolutely. you. Awesome. But I don't yep. want to put words in your mouth. But, Doc, thanks for being a good sport here. I, I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Uh, wish you all the best uh, at Giant. Looking forward to following you guys and seeing all the, uh, all the impact you can make on increasing access, making it more affordable, and helping out everybody you possibly can. So once again, Dr. Justin Graham, Chief Medical Officer of Giant, thanks again for joining us here on Healthcare Americana.
2: Thank you, Chris. This was great. I really appreciate the invitation to be on your podcast.
1: That's going to do it for this episode of Healthcare Americana. If you haven't yet, be sure to subscribe to this show on your favorite podcast platform. Check us out online at healthcareamericana.com to catch previous episodes. Subscribe to our mailing list and visit our fantastic online store. Grab a new t-shirt. Once again, I am your host, Christopher Habig. Thanks for listening. Check out HealthcareAmericana.com
0: to hear all our episodes. Visit the shop and learn more about the podcast. Healthcare Americana is produced by Taylor Scott and iPodcast Pro and managed by Melissa Turpin. Healthcare Americana is brought to you by Freedom Health Works and Freedom Doc. If you've been struggling to get the care you need and the access you want, it's time to join your local Freedom Doc. Visit freedomdoc.care to find the practice location nearest you. Whether you're a patient, employer, or physician, the Free Market Medical Association can facilitate and assist you in your free market healthcare journey. The foundation of our association is built upon three pillars price, value, and equality, with complete transparency in everything we do. Our goal is simple match willing buyers with willing sellers of valuable healthcare services. Join us and help accelerate the growth of the free market healthcare revolution. For more information on the Free Market Medical Association, visit fmma.org.
1: Hi again, everyone. This is Chris. At Healthcare Americana, we're always on the lookout for great stories to tell in the healthcare industry, and we'd like to hear yours. Check out healthcareamericana.com and send us your ideas for episodes or if you'd like to be a guest. Thanks again for listening. Hope you enjoy it.